0: You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. I'm sure you've been watching the news recently, and you've seen the things that have been unfolding in Afghanistan. And the things that have been happening there have been heartbreaking on a number of levels. It's been heartbreaking on a humanitarian level, but it's also been heartbreaking for those who are Christians in the country. Um, As we've looked at that, I'm sure you've seen over the last couple of weeks the the footage of people trying to escape the, the sudden surge of Taliban rule in Afghanistan. And it immediately puts many Christians and minorities and other faith groups at risk because the Taliban have an extremist form of Sunni Islam and are imposing a very strict rule on the country, and that those who were previously allowed to worship freely now cannot do so. Even the rights of women uh, being taken away and uh, just strict rule being imposed upon the country. Back on August the 18th, we had a message from uh, our World Assemblies of God Fellowship, the uh, Acts 1 8 Project, issued an urgent prayer request for Afghanistan stating. That Afghanistan has fallen, Christians in Afghanistan need urgent prayer. For the next few hours are critical for the nation, as Taliban has routed government forces and taken over the country in the last few days, even the president has fleed the country. This fast-moving and unpredictable situation needs earnest prayer as requested by various ministry groups who have served in Afghanistan, establishing ministry and house churches. There are no single church buildings in Afghanistan. They're actually not allowed. But during the presence of international forces in the past 20 years, many ministries have developed disciples and an underground house church movement. Now the Taliban have started killing house church pastors, and believers are in danger as any believer in Christ will normally suffer the death penalty under the Taliban's harsh form of Islam. Now only the heavenly angelic forces can continue to sustain the church in Afghanistan. Therefore, we ask for your uh, urgent prayer and urge you to pray for Christians and the church in Afghanistan. Already thousands are displaced, fleeing key cities and seeking protection from the Taliban. The Taliban has cut off all exit points to neighboring countries, especially Pakistan. Please pray for countries in South Asia, Pakistan, India and those who will be giving refuge to those to seek safety. We uh, see a huge humanitarian crisis unfolding in Afghanistan right now. Um, And what is happening now is that as people are fleeing the country, there needs to be a place to go for these Christians and these other groups that uh, don't fall under the Taliban rule. There's a place that they need to go. And oftentimes what we've said is, you know, let's... You know, refugees are not our problem. They're some other country's problem. But I would remind you that these people who are fleeing the country are brothers and sisters in Christ and need a place to go. They're just simply trying to get out and get their families safely out. We as a country should welcome them just as this country has welcomed many who have fled religious persecution in the past. CBN reported on August 21st of 2021 uh, concerns over 8,000 Christians being eliminated. Within hours of capturing Herat, they said, the Taliban jihadist fighters were out patrolling the streets, convincing residents of Afghanistan's third largest city that life would soon return to normal. That business would continue as normal and people are happy with us and with our services and they will be happier the Taliban said. But Hamid has serious doubts about those claims. Right now we fear elimination, he said. The Taliban are going to eliminate Chris, the Christian population in Afghanistan, he told CBN News. Hamid, not his real name, is among thousands of Afghans who've come to faith in Jesus Christ over the past two decades. We've concealed his identity for safety. He goes on to say there were a lot of Christians. There weren't a lot of Christians 20 years ago during the Taliban's time, but today we're talking about 5,000 to 8,000 local Christians who live and worship in Afghanistan. In an exclusive interview from an undisclosed location, Hamid told CBN News he's very concerned about the future of Afghanistan's tiny Christian community. We know a believer, he said, who we've been working with in the north, and he's a leader, and we've lost all contact with him because the city has fallen to the Taliban. There are three other cities where we've lost contact with our Christian believers. According to Open Doors, Afghanistan is the second most dangerous place to be a Christian in the world today, just behind North Korea. Most of the Christians there converted from Islam. Some of the believers are known In their communities, people know that they are converted from Islam to Christianity, and they are considered apostates, and the penalty for that is death, he said. The Taliban are famous for carrying out that punishment. As you've watched the news, we've already heard about the brutal killing of the police chief in Kabul and mass executions taking place at the hand of the Taliban, who anyone who opposes them immediately faces death. But there have been encouraging reports as well. If you did not hear Glenn Beck, who happens to be a Mormon, and uh, his organization, the Nazarene Fund, along with the jet that was donated by Kenneth Copeland Ministries, helped fly a mission into Afghanistan to help bring out 5,100 Christians and religious minorities out of the country to be able to get them to safety and to a safe place. We've also heard stories of, since our government has not done a good job of being able to help those who have been left behind, there's actually stories of uh, former um, Afghanistan war veterans, U.S. military, who did not want to abandon and leave behind um, those freedom fighters and those special Afghan special forces who worked with them, the translators and people that have helped them out along with their families, and they staged their own mission, codenamed Pineapple Express, and flying into the country without the U.S. military's help and getting about 500 uh, Afghan uh, uh, special forces, translators, and their families out of the country. So there are encouraging moments along the way, but when I heard about these stories, my thoughts immediately went to the immense cost of being a Christian in these high-risk countries. And then I thought about Christianity here in America and how different it is here than in other parts of the world. For many here in the United States, Christianity is more about comfort than about sacrifice. Instead of asking what can I do for God, some only think about what God can do for them. Instead of saying, God, not my will, but yours be done, some say, I want it my way or no way whatsoever. Instead of being selfless and self-sacrificing, some choose selfishness and look to what they can get from God instead of what they can give to him. And it's interesting to think about, too, is that like, when we think about what's going on in another part of the world, and we must ask ourselves the question, if we were faced with those same kind of circumstances, if it meant possibly being imprisoned, tortured, or being put to death for our faith, would we still hold on to being a Christian or would we crumble under the immense pressure to conform and to renounce our faith? Because that's what's happening in that country. And there's a call that God wants to call us to. It's, uh, call away from comfort and convenience and towards conviction and commitment to the Lord. Why do we see this in the American church? I think it stems from an incorrect view of God. When a person views God as serving them instead of them serving him, then that's when the problems start because that perspective focuses on, on the individual's needs and desires, rather than God's will, his purpose, and his plan. God's plan and his purpose for this world has always been to build his church. And he said the gates of hell itself would not prevail against it. However, when we lose sight of what God's plan and purpose is, we end up focusing on ourselves and our own convenience, our own comfort, and sacrificing that which is important. So there are times when things get difficult, where people are inclined to forsake God for comfort. When faced with inconvenience, difficulty, or challenges, some will abandon their devotion to God in favor of their own comfort. Believe it or not, Jesus encountered people like that in his own ministry. Think about that. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, is uh, God incarnate. Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh walking and preaching and teaching the Word of God and the ways of God and demonstrating the miraculous among them and that there were still people who were kind of on the fence about serving him or were serving him with the wrong motivations. Some were following Jesus and not all of their reasons were good or godly. Some followed him because they wanted to see signs and wonders. Others followed him because of the bread and the fish that he offered. And when he fed the 4,000 and the 5,000, Jesus' following got really big after that. And the crowds would follow him from place to place. and But they didn't follow him for the reasons that you might think. Instead of following him and saying, you know, you're the Messiah. You're the, the chosen one of God. And I want to dedicate my life to you. They were asking themselves, when's the next meal? God, when are you going to feed us again? When are you going to do another Uh, feeding miracle for the rest of the masses others wanted to see him overthrow the roman empire Were hanging their hopes on that so in the middle of all this jesus knows people's hearts can i just challenge you with that that god knows our hearts he knows our motivations even if our motivations aren't right none of that escapes the gaze of christ he knows the way that we are and he knows that the way that we tend to be So what does Jesus do? Does Jesus continue to to feed into that need to keep trying to please the crowds? This is what's really interesting today about the way Jesus ministered versus the way the American church tries to get people in. That if something worked on the first time, let's keep giving people more of what they want. But Jesus had followers of 5,000 people after he was feeding the multitudes. And what he decides to do is he decides to preach a difficult message about what it really means to follow Jesus. And as you can imagine, it kind of didn't sit well with people at all to the degree that a lot of people left following after him after that. If you will turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 25 through 33. And Jesus talks about the cost of being a disciple. Now being a disciple, the word disciple be, it means being a follower or a learner of someone. So when we're saying, okay, Jesus is saying, if you want to be a disciple, if you want to follow after me, here's what I expect of you, here's what I'm challenging you to do. And as we read through it, we'll recognize there's a cost involved. And Everything, when it comes to following Jesus, has a cost. And so there's a cost to our convictions. There's a cost to following Christ. Looking at verse 25, and I believe this is one of the most difficult things that Jesus ever had to share with those who wanted to follow him. So when you read these words with me, understand that they may kind of unsettle you a little bit. And at first glance, they may make you say, well, wait a minute. Did he really mean what he said he meant here? Verse 25 says Now, Jesus said to the multitudes, They went with him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciples. Now, wait a minute. I want to pause here because at first glance, this is a very difficult thing that he just said. He's not saying, uh, You have to hate your family in order to follow me. Now, some of you do that without even being a Christian. You might dislike your mother-in-law. You might dislike, you know, uh, certain nieces and nephews. You might already dislike them without having to be a Christian. Jesus is not saying you need to absolutely hate your family in order to follow me. In fact, this would go against Jewish teaching that says to honor your father and mother and to take care of your family. He is not saying to follow Jesus, you have to hate your family. Instead, what he's saying is that you cannot love your family more than you love me. And the reason why this is is because many who decide to follow Jesus, if you look at the history, if you look at those who followed Jesus, when Jesus' ministry was here on earth, and if you've watched The Chosen at all, which is a great series if you haven't had a chance to do it, you can download the app and just watch it for free. There's season one and two. Wonderful storytelling about the life of Jesus. But there are those that didn't quite like Jesus' teaching, particularly the Pharisees. They considered Jesus to be a false teacher and a heretic. And so, so some who followed Jesus would be excluded from life in the synagogue. Now, usually if you were excluded from life in the synagogue, that meant that you couldn't worship with the rest of the people in your town. Sometimes it meant that you had to be separated from your family. Sometimes if your mom and dad wanted to continue to worship in the synagogue, they couldn't associate with you. There were those that, uh, who came from different backgrounds and from their Jewish background, from other heritages as well, that to become a Christian meant that your family would disown you. In fact, we see that in the Middle East and many times when a a, a Muslim comes to faith in Christianity, they are uh, kicked out of their family. And in some cases, the family does what's called an honor killing, where a family member is put to death because they have shamed the family and have turned against Islam. So what Jesus is saying is that, you know, you can't love your family more than me. That you must be willing to love me and follow me even if your family's not willing to go with you. Are you willing to make that commitment? Family and community were a big part of life in the Middle East. So to be removed from your family was to lose your identity. One who decided to follow Jesus would have to choose between the comfort of family or the courage of their convictions either to stay with the religion or lack thereof their home, or to choose to follow Jesus. It was not an easy decision, and some would turn back. And Jesus was letting them know that to follow him, it could cost them their family. Now you might be saying, well, what does this mean for me, Pastor? Does this mean I have to leave my family in order to follow Jesus? No. You have to leave your family to follow Jesus. But there may be at times where you are at odds with your family because of your faith and you have to be ready for that and that even Jesus said that I did do not think that I came to bring peace but to bring a sword dividing father against uh, child against father and brother against sister and what he's saying is he's not uh, doing this to kind of create difficulty but that by nature of what he preaches and teaches that those who choose to follow him and those who choose to not follow him immediately causes division in the home. So does it mean I have to leave my family? Does that mean I have to divorce my husband or divorce my wife or disown my children? No. In fact as we look at uh, 1 Corinthians 7 the Apostle Paul talks about the tension between a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse and he encourages them to stay with their family and to as long as they're willing to live together and stay together as a married couple they should stay together because he said you don't know what effect you'll have on your family that your family might come to faith in Christ through your faithful witness but you might say well pastor it's really difficult to be a Christian in my family because I get all the pressure I get all the difficulty, I get the terrible comments from my family members, from my brother and my sister. Or when things go badly, they say, you know, where's your God now? Or why are you going to church? You know it's just a bunch of nonsense. And it's hard to be in in that environment. But the challenge is, is that will you be devoted to God above all else? and that will you stay faithful to your family in your situation to be a witness to them? Take a look at verse 27. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Let's pause there. I want you to think about this, Jesus saying this. This is pre-crucifixion and resurrection. This phrase that Jesus shares with his disciples And those who are listening must have been very confusing for them. Because up until that point, to to bear the cross means that only criminals died this way. Only revolutionaries died on a cross. To carry your cross meant that you were sentenced to certain death. So those who are listening must have been very confused by that. It says, I don't know what you mean by taking up your cross and following after me. But what Jesus was trying to be clear about is that to follow me, you must be willing to die to yourself. We're saying, well, pastor, what do you mean die to self? It means that you're dying to your old life and the way that you were before you were a Christian instead of making your life a hybrid of being a Christian and still living the way that you used to be before you were a Christian. You know, in the Old Testament, they had a word for that, is that if you were faithful to the Jewish faith, but you also did other things, you know what they called that? They called that idolatry. They called that that you were, had a divided heart, that you, your worship wasn't centered purely on God, but that you worshiped more than just God. You worshiped other things too. Crucifixion was this terrible, excruciating punishment. It was a symbol of death. To take up one's cross meant that you were going to die, and Jesus wants us to be willing to die to our old life. You know all those things that you confessed to him that you were sorry for when you came to Christianity? It doesn't mean that we just keep doing those things. What it means is that we consider ourselves dead to those things, and we decide to live for him and follow him as difficult as that may be. And that there are times where, there there are times in your life that as you are following him, the old life wants to kind of creep back inside. Your old way of living wants to say, you know what, what you used to do is okay. Come back to the dark side. Come back to this way. You know, don't you remember the fun that you used to have? Don't you remember the things that you used to do? Don't you miss it? Don't you miss hanging out with friends and doing the things that you used to do? Don't you want to come back to that? So there's always going to be this tension where the old life keeps calling to you, where the enemy, the devil, the, the enemy of your souls is continuing to whisper in your ear temptation, and then when you fall into sin, bring about condemnation and judgment against you and to bring shame. But we must choose to die to ourselves. Jesus says something similar to this in Matthew 16, 24, and 25. Let's take a look at that. Matthew 16, 24, and 25. We'll take a look at that together. And so Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is there to gain the whole world but lose your soul? And what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus, said, if you want to follow me, you must be willing to give your life for me. And the early Christians did just that. You know, it wasn't like, do I get up for church in the morning? It wasn't like, do I decide to go to church today or not? That wasn't even a discussion among early Christians. The early Christians were there. Every time they got together, they met daily. It's like, wow, that's a lot. You know, if we have like a three-day revival service, like maybe I'll go out for two. You know, or if we have a Tuesday night prayer once a month, maybe I'll go out for that. But can you imagine that the Christians the early Christians met together every day. Now I'm not advocating that we should be here every day. That I don't know if I could be interesting every day to be honest with you. I don't know if I'd have enough to share with you every day. But the when the body came together, they encouraged one another. When the church came together, they encouraged one another. So when a, a person became a Christian, they left everything behind and their old life was gone. And they said, okay, I'm following after Jesus. And so I'm denying myself all the comforts, all the conveniences, all the things that made my life easy in the first place. I'm leaving those things behind. Jesus said, in order to be my disciple, you might have to give your life for me. And the early Christians did just that. In the first century, the first century countless Christians were martyred during Roman persecution under the Roman emperors Nero and Domitian. Some were beheaded, burned at the stake, crucified and killed in the Colosseums, and Christians in Afghanistan who planted and pastored home churches, that some gave their lives to follow Jesus and would not renounce their faith, even if it meant death. Why? Why would they choose to die for their faith? Because they knew that salvation was found in no one else. And that if they deny Jesus in this life, that they would forfeit their salvation in the next. And they love the Lord more than life itself. Jesus challenges listeners that they would have to forsake this world and follow him, forsaking all of its comforts and conveniences and selfish pursuits and laying aside anything and everything in order to please the Lord, doing whatever he asks of us. Jesus even stated, "Was it? Profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? All the money in the world won't matter when you die. It will only benefit those you leave behind. You know, uh, Jim Elliott, who was a missionary to the Aka Indians in Peru, when he went there, he went to a cannibalistic tribe to preach the gospel. He and his companion were killed by the tribe. They were put to death for sharing their faith. And his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, went back and shared the gospel and saw that entire tribe come to Christ. But Jim Elliot said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot uh, lose to gain what he cannot uh, find. So Jim Elliot was talking about his life, and he is no fool who gives when he cannot lose to gain what he cannot uh, forfeit. So Jim Elliot gave of himself and he understood that his life was given in the service of the Lord. That understanding that nothing else mattered to him. There's no profit in gaining everything in this life and pursuing everything in this life when in the end, when you die, you won't take it with you. You'll completely leave it behind. The only things to matter in heaven is whether we know God and are known by Him. You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't call a favor in to get inside. True followers of Jesus are ones that know the Lord by name because they are His. Now, continuing on, let's go back to Luke verse 28. It says, For which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he laid the foundation... And who is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him and come against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, send a delegation and ask for conditions of peace. So likewise... (laughs) Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus sees two pictures here about counting the cost. Now listen, one of the things that's really important today is that as you live this life that we're in is that you count the cost of everything, especially in a society where inflation is going through the roof, that it costs so much to be able to uh, you know, build, to create, to even fill your gas tank. It's now $3.00. A gallon to fill your gas tank and so you have to have a budget in place you have to know how much you make you have to know what your expenses are and when it comes to big purchase whether you're buying a home whether you're buying a car you have to ask yourself can i afford the payments and honestly when i look at the commercials that come on the the tv and they talk about you know a car payment that's four to five hundred dollars a month as though that's a good deal i kind of choke a little bit Wow, that's a lot of money. At least for me it is. It might not be for you, but for me, I think that's a lot of money for a monthly car payment because I know that I can't afford that. When I count the cost, I go, I can't do that. So wisdom says I'm going to choose to not take on something that I can't keep up with. You don't want your home foreclosed on. You don't want your car repossessed. So by doing so, you count the cost to make sure, you know what? I I have enough to cover this. So Jesus uses the illustration of a man who builds a tower. And if he's building a tower, he needs to make sure that he has the manpower and the money to finish it. Otherwise, that uncompleted tower will be a joke in the community. It'll be a joke in the community. People will look at it and say, what happened there? Oh, some guy built it. He didn't finish it. I think there's a house on uh, 167 going down to Connecticut that's up on a hill there. It looks like, a, you know, a, a ski chalet and it's this big, beautiful house that has lights coming out. It's not finished. I don't know whose it is. Maybe someone's watching. It's theirs. But people are going, what, what's going on with that house? And if it's unfinished, people look at it, and it becomes a little bit of a joke and an object of scorn and ridicule. And then he talks about a king that puts together an army. And if he is uh, facing another army, if his army is not big enough, then he must uh, negotiate signs of peace in order to be able to avoid the battle. There's two interpretations to these two illustrations here. The first one is this, that is God is the builder and God is the king. And the question we must ask ourselves is that when we're talking about building the kingdom of heaven, we're talking about building the kingdom of God, do, can the Lord count on us to build his kingdom? That when he has called us by name to follow him, Can he count on us to follow through that we will build his kingdom, that that we'll commit ourselves and count the cost and that we'll be available to not only start the work but to finish the work as well? Can the Lord count on us? We're also an army in the king's service. We're to do battle for him. We're to fight for the kingdom of God in this world. But can he count on us to stay true and fight the battle or do we abandon and retreat at the first sign of trouble? Many of us go through different kinds of trouble and instead of staying firm in our faith, we abandon the cause. We turn away, away from what he wants us to do. The other uh, interpretation of this is too when it comes to us, when we decide to follow Jesus, are we counting what Jesus said? That when he says to us, you know, I want you to know that to follow Jesus means that you might have to, you know, that your family might not agree with you anymore, and it might cause some tension and some strain in your family. Are you still willing to follow me? You might lose friends over this, friends who might not understand why you don't do the things that you used to do. Are you willing to do that in spite of the fact that, you know, we like friends. We like hanging out with people. We don't want to be left out of something or the fact that it might cost us everything, might cost us our very lives, would we be willing to give our lives for the cause of Christ, or would, would just even the slightest inconvenience make us second-guess our faith and choose not to follow after him? Jesus is very clear about what it means to be a disciple. It's not like he's running a bait-and-switch you know I'm talking about? When you sign up for something, you're like, oh, I'll sign up for that car extended warranty that they keep calling me about. and Or your home warranty. Your home doesn't have a warranty. It never had, never will, but you still get the mail, don't you? And it still says, your home's warranty might have expired. My home was built in 1853. I'm pretty sure if there was any warranty, it probably expired already. Jesus doesn't say one thing and then change it to something else. He doesn't lie to get things across you know, that's what's the problem sometimes when we talk about following Jesus. We only promise the best. And we don't talk about the challenges and the difficulties and the cost involved. And when people say, you know, it's always about the best of everything. God has what's best for you. He does. But it's going to cost you something. There's going to be heartache. There's going to be difficulty along the way. There are going to be challenges. There's going to be times where it's a challenge to follow uh, God and to keep your faith in Him. Um, so i want you to understand that today is that he's calling us to a deeper devotion in him and so he doesn't uh bait and switch he doesn't have any hidden clauses in the contract he doesn't mislead people about what it means to follow him but rather jesus lays it all on the table and he says this is what it costs to be my disciple are you willing to do it this is what it means to be a christian Do you understand what I'm asking of you? So that when you choose to follow him, there is no ambiguity, there is no confusion. It is what it is. He told them about the cost before they decide to follow him. The Lord preached a message that was meant to thin out the ranks. Isn't that crazy to think about? You know, if you had a a following, if you had a church of 5,000 people, Jesus had four to 5,000 people following him around because he, he fed the multitudes. Wouldn't you want to keep that going? He said, you know, this is a good thing we got here. Let's keep this going. But Jesus looked at it and said, you know what? The motivations behind this are not right. And that people are not following me because they want to follow me. They're following me for what I can give them. That's a challenging thought when you think about it. Are we only following Jesus for what he can give us? Or are we following him because of what he's already given us? Do you see the difference? When we're following him, we're saying like, well, I want this God from you. Give this to me. What we're forgetting is he's already done so much for us already. He saved our souls. He's given us eternity. We have eternal life in him. And yet we're still saying, you know, that's not enough, God. I want more. And I'm grateful that we can pray to God and God will answer our prayers and he'll help us on our behalf. But do we understand what he's already given us and that if he was keeping score, we owe him quite a bit. But aren't you glad he's not keeping score like that? Some people, you do them a favor and they're like, you owe me now. But the Lord's not like that. But we do owe everything that we have to him because he's given us so much. He preaches this message that's meant to thin out the ranks. Nothing like a serious message of commitment to cause people to run and hide. People can be f- commitment-phobic, and they like to keep their options open instead of giving themselves fully to a cause. It's always like, you know, when we ask, you know, when we put something on, sometimes, especially among teenagers, like, well, who's going? You know, I'll go, but who's going? Well, there has to be somebody that says, you know, I'm going, so you can say to the other people, that person's going. So someone has to be the first to be like, you know, I'm going too. So we're often like, well, you know, who's going? Who'll be there? Who's leading worship this week? Um... Do I have anything going else going on on the weekend? These are thoughts that never enter the, the mind or the thoughts of the early Christians or are those who serve Christ in other parts of the world where it's difficult to be a Christian. He knew that some were following him for the wrong reasons. Some wanted to see a miracle. Others wanted food. Others wanted because they were hinging his, their hopes on him for a new kingdom of this world. The crowds followed him without cost or commitment. I want you to recognize this: those who were following Jesus for these things did so without cost or commitment. Whenever they followed Jesus, they just received, but they weren't willing to to be a disciple that was like the the 12 or the 72 that were sent out. When they, they were sent out, they did the work of the kingdom. and they followed him and they were committed to Jesus' teachings daily and they stayed with him. There were only a handful that did that. The rest were just kind of saying, well, what can you give me? Cost and commitment are part of following Jesus. Jesus illustrated the difference between salvation and discipleship. Salvation is freely open to everyone who believes. But to truly be a follower of Jesus, you must be a disciple. And they had to give themselves completely to the task. God gives us many things. Gives us beauty for ashes, joy for mourning, praise for the spirit of heaviness, forgiveness in exchange for our sins, and people to give up the things they don't want to receive from God. That is sometimes what we do. Well, God, I'll give up the things I don't want. God, I don't want the to hurt, so I'm going to give that up. I don't, want, I don't want the shame, so I'll give that up and, and find forgiveness. But, like, when it comes to the things that we, want, that we like and that we want, sometimes Jesus asks us to do that. It's like, well, sometimes I want you to follow me, and it means giving up something you like. It means giving up something that's important to you. Like, family's important. You know, my life is important. My pursuits are important. If God said to you tomorrow, said, you know what, that job that you're in, I want you to leave it, and I have something better for you, would you do it? and that would be challenging wouldn't it or if he said to you, you know it's like you know some of the friends that you're hanging out with i know you love them and i know you care about them but you know if they're leading you down a path that's not pleasing to me and they're going to put you in situations that you shouldn't be in i want you to start pulling away from them would you be willing to do that see we're fine with giving up the things that we don't like that's when jesus asks us to give up the things that we do that we find it challenging whatever he asks of us, are we willing to say yes and to give it up? doesn't mean that it'll be easy. just means that you acknowledge that he's Lord and you're not, that he's in control and you're not. Jesus' words are just as challenging to us today as they were then, that to save our life, we must lose it. To say that our home is heaven means we cannot seek to be comfortable here on earth. We can't live in two places and expect to be fully devoted to God. We can't have our foot in the world and our foot in Christianity and say, okay, I'm serving God fully if we're divided because we'll always feel the pull back and forth. We must choose to make a stand for one or the other. And it's not to say there aren't times where we kind of drift back towards the old life. But once we recognize it, we should pull ourselves back to following him and turn away from those things that we used to turn away, that we were part of. We can't serve two masters and claim to be faithful, especially when the two masters are telling us different things. If our master is ourselves, we're always gonna go with what we want. That when people are mean to us, we will retaliate. When pe- when, instead of uh, turning the other cheek, we'll always retaliate in some way. But if we're following Jesus, he'll say, just turn the other cheek. Don't retaliate. Let the Lord bring about the retribution and the challenges there. So there are two masters who are two, saying two different things. We say different things than what Jesus would want us to do. The devil tells us different things than what Jesus would want us to do. We can't serve them both and be in agreement. Jesus said you can't, a man can't serve God and money. Jesus is challenging the motivations of his day. What drives a person? When a person chooses to follow Jesus, they're saying, I'm leaving everything behind. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute and to put it in perspective for you, okay? Think about it this way. Think about how hard you work for your job. Think about how hard you work day to day to be able to bring home the income for the better life that you have. Think about all that you've invested of yourself into that thing. And that Jesus said it will cost you everything. Imagine if you worked for the Lord with that level of devotion. Imagine if you gave all of yourself in that way to him. That would be an incredible sacrifice, an incredible devotion. Does that mean you can't have a regular job and serve the Lord? No. What it means is that I'm looking at this as not my be-all and end-all. That money is not my only motivation, but serving the Lord comes first, and then my family, and then the other goals that I have in life fall underneath that. But God's first. And even all that I'm working towards is to bring about and to serve God's purposes, that even the decisions I make are rooted in what God wants me to do and what He wants where He wants me to go? When we choose to follow Jesus, are we following Him with that same devotion, with that same abandonment, with that same drive, or is it something that's kind of like, "Eh, I can take it or leave it?" It's the difference between, okay, so if you're a baking. I'm not a baker, but some of you bake, okay? It's the difference between a main ingredient or a seasoning, okay? So if you have, say, okay, you like adding salt to a dish to give it a little bit of flavor. But you know that that's just something you can add. It's purely optional. It's like adding grated cheese to pasta, okay? But if you're talking about baking and you somehow leave eggs out, Okay, or you somehow leave the sugar out of a cake, it becomes clearly obvious that you didn't do this right. Why? Because you've left out a key main ingredient to what you are baking and creating. Those who eat it go, this is really dry, or this is really flavorless, or there's something wrong with this. I can't tell what's wrong with it, but it's not right. So it is with our life that we have to look at the Lord as the main ingredient, not just something we sprinkle onto our week. That's something we get in here and go, well, you know, my life is my own and then I'll just add a little Parmesan to it to spice things up and maybe it'll be different. That's not how, you won't see life change. You won't see your family change. You won't see your community change if he's only just something you add on occasion. He has to be the main ingredient. He has to be at the core of who you are. He has to be at the center of your being. So much so that you love him and follow him no matter what. Jesus is calling us to deeper commitment. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. He's calling us to a deeper commitment. He's calling us to be disciples. He's calling us to be followers of him. I want you to understand how how big of a deal that is, that Jesus chose you to follow him, that he wanted you to be a Christian. You're like, well, I'm not very good at it, He chose you to be a follower of him. And he's challenging us. He's challenging the casual Christian. He's challenging the person that just kind of comes and goes as they please. He's challenging all of us. Believe me, when I read these words, they're not something that just simply go, oh, yeah, I can do that. It challenges me because it is a big commitment. It is a big challenge for us to be able to do that. But do we truly know what it means to be a Christian, do we have that level of commitment? When we look at things in our life, and we go, "You know what? He calls us to be holy. That I'm willing to set aside things that are not right to follow Him." When He says, "You know, be baptized in the name of the Lord," that we don't look at that. Well, that's a suggestion. That might be nice if we do it, but we see it as a command. And we say, "I'm going to get baptized." When He says, "You know," uh, you know, the, every, to, to lay down our lives for him, would we be willing to truly do that? And I'll be honest with you, that's a challenging thought, that if we were faced with a life or death situation, would we be willing to say, yes, I would do that? I, even myself, I've never been put in that situation. I hope to never be put in that situation. That if it meant me or my family, that I would have to make that decision. And I would pray that I would have the courage to do it. You know what I mean? But what Jesus is asking of us is difficult, but he's calling us, to deeper convictions, deeper connection, deeper commitment to him. I pray this word challenges you as it's challenged me today that, you know what? I want to be one of those people that follows the Lord. I'm not going to read from it, but Psalm 116 says, how can I repay the Lord for all that he's done for me? How can I repay him for everything he's done for me? He says, I will fulfill my vows before the Lord in the presence of Of his sanctuary. I will, I will, what does the vow mean? The promises I've made, the the oath I've made, the the commitment I've I've made, the covenant I've made with him, I will fulfill it in the presence of others, and I will do it before you. I will carry out what I've committed to you. What have you committed to the Lord that you need to follow through on? What is he calling you to do? Or what did he call you to do that you haven't followed through on? part of the reason why we come to church is that we hold each other accountable. When people would make uh, an oath in the sanctuary, when they make a vow in the sanctuary, in the temple, there were others that watched him and heard him and would hold that person accountable to what they had said. We've lost that today. We don't have that anymore. But the Lord's calling us to deeper devotion. Would you bow your heads with me today? I pray this message has worked in your heart in some way. Maybe it's made you uncomfortable and shift in your seat a little bit maybe it's made you kind of go, you know what, I'm feeling really uncomfortable. I'm feeling a little threatened maybe. And if it was for that reason, that's the exact reason why Jesus said it, to make people say, you know what, I'm either for him or against him. And then there were some people that said, you know what, this is more than I bargained for. But my prayer for you today is as you hear the words of Jesus, it wouldn't challenge you to abandon ship or to jump off the side of the boat, but they would cause you to desire to go deeper with him because he's done so much for you. He's loved you. He's given you so much. He's blessed you in so many different ways. My prayer for you is that you will choose to commit your ways fully to the Lord. Will you do that today as we get ready to pray here in just a moment? Will you just, in your heart right now, commit yourself once more to the Lord whether you're here in this room or whether you're at home, would you just do that right now? Just close your eyes and just tell the Lord one more time, Lord, I I choose to follow you. Thank you for laying out what it means to be a disciple today. I choose to follow you. I know what's on the dotted line, Lord. I choose to sign once more. I choose to follow you. I commit myself wholly and fully to you. And forgive me for the times that I haven't been faithful to you. I commit myself once more, not only to you, but what the things that I said that I was going to do in the first place. And let this be a day of consecration. Let this be a day of devotion. That You, once again, put things as proper perspective where the Lord is first and everything else is secondary. Let's pray. Shall we do that? Gracious Lord, we thank you today. Lord, we love you. We praise you today for all of your goodness to us. And God, I just pray that, Lord, as your words have always been challenging and they've always uh, gotten to the core, Lord, of where we're at, Lord God. Lord, even as we're listening today, as we've sat here, Lord God, I pray that you have just begin to work in our spirits and work in our hearts to challenge us towards change, to challenge us towards deeper commitment. Lord, may we be people of our word and be people of your spirit. Draw us nearer to you today. And I pray this would be a, a new beginning for some, a fresh start for many. And Lord, a refocusing of priorities, Lord, on the things that matter most. Lord, you are all that matters. And that, Lord, that everything that we say and do, Lord God, should have uh, the, the, the fabric, Lord, of your will entwined in it your calling your word entwined it that look, lord we look at every task whether it be the day-to-day routine or our work or our family that we would look at you as being first in all things and make our decisions based on that because you are our lord and our savior we ask this in jesus name amen thank you for listening we invite you to join us sunday mornings to worship with us We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.